there was this thing that was made <laughs> called the internet. <laughs> and then there's even better thing like called Google that you just type in random words. Black History Canada. Hi everyone, I'm Yasmeen. Welcome to Inner Work, Ally Squared's official podcast where we learn how to better practice allyship. Ally Squared's team resides and works on the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin peoples, but our work extends across Turtle Island. We give our respect to the first peoples of this land and commit to decolonizing efforts within our organization. Today, we're going to be talking about intentionality, goal setting, impact measurement, and allyship, and BIPOC representation in politics. Today, we actually have a special co-host, which is Samea. She's a director here at Ally Square, and I'll give her some time to introduce herself. Hi, yes. So my name is Tumea. I'm super excited to be here today. I am a law student, one more year to go. Um, as of right now, I am the director of legal operations, meaning I make sure that we, as an organization, comply with legal rules and regulations and just helping out, like, flesh out the policies here at Ally Square. And like I said, I'm super excited to be here today and having a chat, chat with our guests. Yes, and we do have a special guest here today joining us as well, and that is Selena Caesar Siobhan, and we're very excited to talk to her. Um, before we do, we're going to just kind of go over some things for all of our listeners. So what is BIPOC? Um, BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, and it's meant to be a more inclusive acronym than just People of Color because Black and Indigenous voices are often left out of the narrative. Um, and what is representation and why is it important? So representation in the context of politics is where someone is speaking and acting on behalf of someone else or a body of people like a city, state, province, or even a country. Um, and we expect that a governing body is meant to be representative of its population and its population's needs. Um, so it should also look like its population. But time and again throughout history, White people, particularly men, have occupied the space in the political sphere. And how can we expect white men to represent everyone when they only know what it's like to be a white man? So a lack of representation is unjust and it's detrimental to the lives of BIPOC. And we need more BIPOC people in politics because having BIPOC people in offices boosts civic engagement and increases the trust in government because there's more diversity in its representation and it leads to better policies because there are a variety of voices and ideas at the table. And without proper representation, our system is actually less democratic. So our special guest today again is Selena Caesar Siobhan and Selena is a business consultant, coach, international speaker. She currently serves as senior advisor EDI initiatives and adjunct lecturer at Queen's University and her forthcoming book, Can You Hear Me Now, published by Penguin Random House Canada, will be available on February 2nd, 2021. I can't wait to read. She was a former member of Parliament for Whitby, Parliamentary Secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Parliamentary Sec Secretary for International Development. During her, her term as Member of Parliament, Selena was awarded Champion of Mental Health Parliamentarian Award by the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. 
uh, Ontario Black History Society Daniel G. Hill Award for Community Services in 2017, Black Parliamentarian of the Year featured in April 2018 edition of O Magazine entitled What Would You Stand Up For? and named Chatelaine Magazine's Woman of the Year in 2019. Before entering politics, Mrs. Caesar Chavon was successful entrepreneur and recipient of both the Toronto Board of Trades Business Entrepreneur of the Year, Black Business and Professional Associations, Harry Jerome Young Entrepreneur Award. So she is very, very impressive. And Selena, the first question that we kind of pose to all of our guests, um, just to get us into the process, is what inner work have you had to do to get yourself to where you are today? So first of all, I would like to say thank you for having me and um, thank you for using your platform to have some of these conversations, which tend to be off of the mainstream conversations. Although in 2020, maybe it's been a little bit more prevalent, but still we need additional platforms to amplify these voices. Um, and when you talk about inner, do you mean like myself in terms of personal development or navigating inside spaces? Can you just clarify what that question means? Yeah, so when we talk about inner work, I think more so what we mean is what have we done within ourselves to kind of get us to where we are today, yeah. Yeah, so um, it's an interesting question because um, before I got into politics, I owned a healthcare-based research management firm, and I ran clinical trials across Canada and was co-chair of Canada's first national epidemiology study on neurological conditions. And I had that company from 2005 to 2010. And one of the things that I did while running that business was every time I'd make a mistake, I'd write it down on a little piece of paper and say, oh my goodness, I'm never going to make that mistake again. And then write how I was going to make that mistake. So what are the things that I would do to not make a mistake? So first of all, never take the first offer. You know, I got a budget and for a, a clinical trial and I immediately signed it back and went to a conference with other individuals who were on that particular study and found out that their budget was three or four or five times higher than mine. And I made the, the decision that I'm always going to negotiate the budget. And I think that I've done that particularly later on in my life. I would say that a lot of the things that I've done towards self-development has been later in my life, recognizing that I had a good foundation in terms of my educational development, my the values and principles that my parents had instilled in me. But it was about navigating the world and learning these types of lessons. And so I'd write them down, but then I realized that never taking the first offer doesn't just apply to a contract. It applies to just knowing your work and knowing how much your company is worth, knowing how to renegotiate things. But also when it comes to relationships, also when it comes to putting an investment in community service or a relationship or, or a, a job, for, for example, and if you're not getting a positive return out of that as you're putting in, then you need to decide whether or not you're going to leave. So a lot of these, a lot of these business sort of lessons that I learned had daily applications that I've used. I think I've used all my life 
but particularly focused on them when I was in my entrepreneurial endeavors and then in politics. Wow, I feel like there's so much I can learn from that. Again, as just like a black woman navigating my own life, um, I often feel like kind of like the I'm not able to speak my mind and speak my voice and just being someone who is like first generation, like the first offer is the best. And you might as well run with it and take it and go home. So I think that that's something that me and even my sister, like we've talked about this multiple times, like she just got hired to a new job and her husband was like, no, negotiate your salary. And she's kind of like, I'm just going to, I'm going to take it. And he's like, no, you have a master's in this field. You have like so much experience. Don't underqualify yourself. So no, that's definitely something I need to learn. <laughs> and that's, that's just the thing, right? Like we're so grateful that we got the offer in the first place, usually that we don't think about negotiating. And number two is that we don't often quantify how much we're worth. So quantify how much our degree is worth, quantify how much our master's is worth, quantify how much our political acumen, our business um, savviness, our ability to speak another language, all, mm -hmm. all of those experiences that we bring in our lives, our mistakes, our pains, our failures, our joys, our triumphs, add value to any organization, school, community that we're a part of. And if we're not taking time to quantify that in some kind of way, we'll never know what to counter offer. Or we'll never know how much love we're putting in a relationship, or whether or not we're getting that love back. If we're not valuing ourselves in a way that is actually tangible. And it's not just about dollars and cents because you can't measure love in dollars and cents, but you have to sort of think about it that way in order to make that count. And like you said, it's not just even in the, like the employment realm. It's not just in your work. It's not that it's like in every aspect, like know your value, learn your value. Yeah. Yeah. And don't be afraid to say it. That's true. That is very true. <laughs> Um, so I'm actually from Whitby, so I'm even more excited, yeah, so I'm more excited to even like interview you, but um, I moved to Whitby when I was 10, and growing up there, it was pretty white, <laughs> there's no shying about that, um, yeah, and I didn't realize how it affected me until after I left, so, and Ottawa isn't even that diverse, but like it's much more diverse. Um, and I was wondering, what has your experience been as a representative for a pretty white dominant riding and as a liberal nonetheless? <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting because I'm actually a senior advisor at Queens right now. And Whitby, uh, if you look at the stats can data, is 70% white, which is pretty much the same across the province of Ontario. Mm -hmm. Kingston is 90%. So uh, I've always telling people in Kingston or at Queens that you live in an alternate universe. Like it just it's just you know the 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 ability to transform your university is going to take some time because you don't you don't experience race or racialized people like the rest of the people in the province do. Um, but when speaking about Whitby and campaigning, and I get this question a lot about you know how is it like campaigning in Whitby. Um, how did you feel? What did what experiences did you have at the door? They were actually quite positive. I did not have any experiences where I felt like my gender or my race played a role in being elected. Um, it, it wasn't until I actually got into politics that I that that became more of an issue. 
But at the door, and you know you can sort of sense your spidey senses tingling when when things are happening, when racism or sexism or discrimination is happening. You could feel it almost. I never felt that. And, you know, I, I, I don't introduce myself as the first. So I, I never I never introduced myself as the first black woman elected in Whitney or the first black mm-hmm. woman in Durham or, you know, I've been a first for a lot of things, but I've never done that because I just, I just don't think it's important. Maybe history does, but I, I just don't. Um, I think keeping the door open is even more important. But being the first black woman elected in, or possibly person of color elected in Whitby, um, I really, I really think about that a lot when I think about my experiences at the door. I was able to be at the door and talk about my business acumen, my ability to lead, and people trusted me at the door. Mm-hmm. And so it, it made it even more important when I was in politics, when I was actually representing, to be that authentic person and to not disappoint those people at the door because I knew the chances of me being elected in a population that's 70% white was and Jim Flaherty country was slim to none and I won so there was a lot of pressure to maintain those promises that I kept at the door and I think that that was the most important part for me and I noticed that you also aren't afraid to speak your truth which is amazing Um, but in the process you've obviously have had some criticism I'm sure and what do you have to say to the critics who criticize you for speaking up about your race or your gender and how it's affected you or other people? Too bad. <laughs> it really, it really is too bad. I mean, I think what, especially when we think about our indigenous brothers and sisters giving us the, the greatest gift of the truth and reconciliation commission. If people really pay attention to that, in order for us to get to a point of reconciliation, you must, you must understand truth, right? They've given us this gift of understanding that you need truth in order to get to reconciliation. It's not reconciliation or it's not just, you know, um, maybe we could, you know, tell a few stories and then get to reconciliation. Like, it's not just, it's not just one part. It's truth and reconciliation. So... The ability to speak truth to power, to understand the history of Black people in particular, um, in my context, but Black and Indigenous people in Canada, is critically important. And, you know, I think our story, is not I think, our stories have been erased from the consciousness of Canadians and from the history books, and not just for Black and Indigenous people, for many people of color, uh, you know, across her lives. And... We need to have that that sort of coming to terms with the fact that there were 206 years of slavery in Canada and that people didn't just come across the Underground Railroad and, oh, my God, we were in a utopia, you know, and that even our democratic institutions were built on a principle of exclusion that excluded women, that excluded black people and that it was re- and, and indigenous people and reinforced by oppressive anti-black policy, immigration policy, uh, the Indian Act, uh, the fact that the last segregated school in Canada uh, ended in 1986. I mean, I was 12 years old at that time. So it's, it's, 
It's not like this ancient history. Yet, yet, and yet, people don't realize that these truths exist in this country. And so, too bad. You don't like the truth that I'm saying, or you want to say, well, everybody's truth is different. Good. And that's, I understand that. But I'm going to continue to speak this truth around issues that are important, that are not just important to me, but important to a community that requires us to speak up in order to get equity for, for people that need it the most. Exactly. I think we as Canadians have this tendency to kind of be like self-righteous and just think we're above any sort of racism or discrimination. And you just like named so many things that have gone on in Canadian history. And again, it hasn't even ended today. Um, and so we're still feeling the impacts lingering. And it's just so, so like us to just kind of wave it off and be like, well, we're not as bad. We're not as overt in the States. First of all, we are. And our racism is definitely more insidious. Um, and it's important, like you said, to keep on speaking up about it, regardless of what the pushback is. And especially since there is still pushback. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, when we set the bar, like we were well, not as bad as the United States. Well, the bar of the United States is really low. Yeah. <laughs> is, this, is this our benchmark? Like our benchmark is to be above the lowest common denominator. Like, like <laughs> set better goals for yourself. I mean, really. <laughs> set better goals for yourself. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-uh. Um. So, but I noticed. So you wrote a piece for us at Ally Squared for our Ally Needed project, and it was the first one ever, and very like informative. Um. But you say in your piece that diversity is ubiquitous and can you explain to your listeners why you said this and what you prefer perhaps in place of diversity or in accordance with it okay so there's a couple of things with this we've spent the last maybe four five or six years um especially with the trudeau administration um, and government talking about diversity being our strength that is a lot it is it is void it is a vacuous statement, and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And it actually speaks to the level of commitment to diversity that that administration has by continuing to perpetuate a lie that says that diversity is strength. Diversity is everywhere. You go to the grocery, you go to your schools, you go to, um, you, you walk outside your community, you see diverse groups, you see different people of different race, gender, ethnicity, background, you name it. Diversity is everywhere. The problem with saying that diversity is our strength is that if those diverse groups continue to exist in silos, continue to not be inclusive, then what is the purpose of, of having a diverse group if you're just not going to engage, if you're not going to talk to them, if you're not going to listen, if you're not going to actually leverage that diversity for something good? So if you're not going to be inclusive, if you're not going to uh, have enough self-awareness to at least exchange in conversation with individuals of diverse backgrounds and and internally for yourself create that empathy that is required to advocate on behalf for equity seeking group then diversity is actually nonsense <laughs> if you're not willing to be inclusive and then even further than that as we strive towards equity, 
we have to have that level of consciousness around um, that empathy that is created when you are talking to people, when you are listening, when you're understanding their stories. So the reason that we saw so many individuals protesting around the modern lynching of George Floyd was because it it actually created an empathetic response. People weren't just sympathizing and saying, oh dear, that poor black man. They weren't, they weren't just, you know, being passive about it. They were actually being anti-racist. They were acting. They went outside. They protested. They added to the voices of black people to say, we want to either defund the police or we want to create equity in our schools or healthcare systems or whatever the case may be. There's an action to it. So you leverage that diversity that is not strength, you leverage the capacity of that diversity to create more inclusive societies and communities and institutions and organizations as you strive towards equity, which is an anti-racist practice. That's all. Very simple. Beautifully said, nonetheless. <laughs> but you know what, on that topic, you talk about diversity and sometimes it's equated with just tokenism. Um, what has your experience been with tokenism? And especially in politics, where, where everything is kind of a little bit more symbolic. Like you hold this title, you're going to fulfill this role, and it's simply because you check a box. Yeah. Um, sorry, I have to write things down because I don't remember mm -hmm. as well as I used to. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I, I, I say all the time that you don't need a title, and it's actually like one of the final lines in my book that leadership doesn't require a title and your value isn't determined by a title. I think that people who are transformative leaders who actually advocate and aren't afraid to speak up are more impactful than people with very fancy titles that do nothing. And so um, what we tend to see when it comes to diversity is that we, we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, like it all has one meaning. Like it means diversity. That like it means, let's just get our little clipboard and our pen, and we're just gonna say, oh my God, we have so many white people in our organization, we need to get like some color, and we need to get some people different gender. <laughs> and you know what, we may wanna get some disabled people too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so, you know what? Let's hire Selena because um, she's like black and oh my god, two for one. That's awesome. And that's that's diversity. That's what you do. And then you're like, okay, well we have Selena and we've done our job. But now Selena comes into an organization that is toxic. And Peter Drucker has said it's there a very famous professor, business. Uh, coach, consultant, has said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So if the strategy of the organization is to be more diverse or more inclusive, let's, let's, let's say they had an aha moment and they want to be not just diverse, but actually go the next step and be inclusive. Yet the culture of that organization is so toxic 
that everybody in there, when you when you hire Selena, everybody in there is so adverse to having Selena being in a leadership position. What is the purpose of that strategy? Because what's going to happen to Selena, she's going to exit the organization. Because culture eats strategy for breakfast. So if the culture of the organization is not one that is conducive to a strategy of, of diversity, inclusion, and equity, then it will die. It will die. It will fail. Period. And so, you know, even my experience within politics and I always have to have this a, a caveat of in 2014-2015, the liberal message was around diversity is our strength, feminist government, bold, transformative, government done differently. That was what they were selling. I bought what they were selling. I bought it. I sold it to the people that are in my neighborhood. I was elected based on what I I purchased that sound. Okay? So now I have that thing and you enter in, remember, culture and strategy for breakfast. The strategy is diversity, feminism, um, bold, transformative government and differently. That is the strategy. Enter into Selena enters into politics and she's like, oh my god, yes, we wanna I wanna make sure that we uh, we do all the stuff that we're going to do. First action that happens is like elbow game. Second action that happens is we're not repealing, um, we're not going to end first past the post. We ain't gonna do what? Second, then then I'm like, well, you said you were gonna repeal mandatory minimums. No, we're not gonna do that because that makes us look soft on crime. That makes us like, mm. and then it's like, okay, well, we're legalizing marijuana. Are we going to expunge records of individuals that have been? Uh, subjected to over surveillance, like Bill Blair is like right here. Tavis, do you remember that program where he was like just scooping up black people and throwing them in jail? Do you remember that? Are we going to expunge those records? Mm, well, no, we'll give them a pardon, but we're not really wanting to do the whole expungement thing. So then you have all of these things happening, and you're, and I'm realizing the culture of the organization is not in line with the strategy that you want to put forward. Whether that is diversity, whether that is feminism, whether that is um, whether that is being bold, whether that is government done differently, you are doing none of those things. And so then how do you reconcile that with the values that you want? So again, and I'm using a lot of business examples, um, but uh, Christian Christensen in, in his essay uh, how will you measure your life? Harvard business professor um, said that if you, it is easier to keep your values and your principles 100% of the time than it is to keep them 98% of the time. If just once you say, oh, you know, just this once, it's okay. It's okay. Maybe I can become a minister if I don't just stand by my values just one time. Mm -hmm. You don't want to do that. You want to stick to your values 100% of the time. Never let that waver. So it was easy for me to make the decision to, to exit, to go. Because the strat again, the culture was not conducive with the strategy. And it was not a fit for me to 
there. And there was a lot of other stuff happening too, but I'm just going to get very. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, of course. I love that culture eat strategy for breakfast because I'm currently going through what, um, like the 2L application process. So we're supposed to find summer positions so that when we're done law school, we can article and respect. Um, and a lot of these firms, because the Law Society of Ontario requires them to have their EDI policy. And like you said, it's usually just the diversity they try to focus on, which is problematic. So me and my roommate, who's a woman of color as well, are like, love to ask, so what are you guys actually doing like tangibly? And you know, like last year, me would have been too scared to ask that. I'm like, I will have no job. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's so true. And it's something like you said, it's not just a policy. It's not just a strategy that you're striving so that you're in compliance with the Law Society of Ontario. It's like, no, what is the culture like? I call up right. the students. I'm like, what is your day to day like? Um, yes. So I absolutely love that. I'm going to share it with her right after this because it's, it's important. It's all about the culture. Um, but in that breath as well, like I'm thinking about you spoke about your hair. You can tell I'm wearing single braids right now. And like I said, I'm going into a, a, a field that's traditionally predominantly male dominated and um, white dominated. And again, last year, me wouldn't have cared, actually, if I went with braids. But now I'm like, should I straighten my hair before these interviews, even if it just gives me like that much of an edge, right? And so it's easy to get caught up in this idea so that you can fit this mold. And I've heard stories, actually, of people having their hair photoshopped from their natural curls to like a bob, right, on these firm photos. And I was wondering, Selena, how has your natural hair affected your journey? Has it not affected at all? Were you kind of like me where I was at last year was like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to do me. Yeah, so this is a very good question um, because, so I have my hair natural probably for the longest that I've ever had it in my life. Um, yeah, and so I braid it, but even when it's braided, I have it straightened underneath the braid. So uh, this year, at the end of this year, I just said, forget it, cut the end of the chop, going all off, and just going natural with it. And so, and I'm 46, I'll be 47 this year. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge because you, we understand the power dynamics that exist in these spaces, and we want to get a paycheck. <laughs> that would be nice. Um, and you want to fit into those spaces. And so people always say to me, you know, one of the, the most frequent questions that I got to bring in politics was, does authenticity work? Being authentic, does it work? And I would say, yes, it does. But you need to be conscious about how authentic you are going to be in, and be safe. So being authentic doesn't mean that you put yourself in harm's way, meaning you're either going to be physically harmed or financially harmed or otherwise. So you need to make a decision. And it's not inauthentic to say, I'm going to authentically hide this piece of myself because I need to protect myself. I think that that's still living in an authentic way. Because you know that without doing that, you are going to be harmed. You're also quite young. Now me, in politics, who, uh, they couldn't fire me for at least four years. <laughs> different space. 47 years yeah. old. Different time. I, I shoot my mouth off all the time. I do what I want. I say what I want. Because I'm in a different sort of space 
than someone who's just starting out in their career. Mm-hmm. Selena's starting out in their career. I think it's clapping back on Twitter. I am keeping my hair straight. I'm yes. trying to like just fit into the mold because I want to get, first of all, I need to get the job. Secondly, I need to like, I need to feed my family. Exactly. So from an authenticity perspective, you have to be authentic in a way that protects yourself. However, if we expect spaces to change and we expect spaces or we want spaces to change, we cannot continue to try to fit into a pre-existing mold that was never designed for us to be there in the first place. So we want to go into parliament or we want to go into these institutions and we want them to change. We want them to be more diverse. We want to be our authentic selves in those spaces, but those spaces were never designed for us to be there. Parliament was never designed for women to be there. Parliament was certainly never designed for women of color and certainly not black women to ever show up. In fact, they still don't have a dress code for women to be there. So you see me quite often on Parliament Hill with my jeans and a t-shirt. And I did that so deliberately (laughs) because it was like, I wanted to send a message that this space wasn't, I was never intended to show up. So first of all, don't silence me when I'm telling you my truth. Secondly, I'm comfortable. <laughs> I'm comfortable in my jeans and t-shirt. Like, short of not wearing a bra, <laughs> like, we were ready to go. Right? Um, but, but this is it. Like, we want these spaces to change, and so we keep, we keep, but we keep trying to fit in in some way. We want to walk in with like our little jacket and our to skirt and our heels and our straight hair and then complain that there isn't enough diversity in politics. So I'm going to go in with my braids and I'm going to go in with my natural hair. And when my staff was saying, oh no, you can't change your hairstyle. You have to keep your hair the same way for four years. I was like, black women change their hair every weekend. So I don't <laughs> even know how that's going to happen. <laughs> so let's just, let's just let people get used to the fact that Selena's hair is going to change on a regular basis. I am never going to wear a suit. I love haute couture. I'm going to wear like my lovely dresses and my heels and I'm going to like, I'm going to look good when I go to work, but it's not going to involve a blazer for me because I just don't feel like I should do that. And then every now and again, I'm going to put on jeans and t-shirt because, hey, there's no dress code anyway. So then. (laughs) No, I I appreciate that because, yeah, again, like I said, it's been a debate and it sounds so trivial you know it's just hair just make sure you brush it or you comb it but it's not and it does make a difference and I like I said I noticed it and you know going off of what you were saying it's kind of like I also don't want to work in a space perhaps where if I do change my hair that is going to be seen because like you were saying that's the culture then no that they're not going to accept that they're not going to see it so it's definitely something I'm grappling with because I do have black women who are like no Samaya you need to stop wearing braids you know um, I've had black, uh, one, my roommate actually had, had someone tell her that because she had, um, like, dreads, like, full walks in, that they just got a vibe that she was a wild girl. Or, you know, in law school, mind you, it wasn't a firm. So, exactly, people do have these perceptions, and yes, you don't even realize, or you do, and it's just so, it's so tough for something like hair. I simple have hair. But hair has always been political, right? Like, being women of color, being a black woman, everything about me is political. Everything about what I do um, has been political. The, the, in the 1700s, when they had the, the, the Tian laws around 
um, women, black women, showing their hair, they weren't allowed to. And so they, we have to wrap them. But then we were like, well, we black women. We're going to wrap them in like the most colorful things. You'll wish we showed exactly. our hair. <laughs> right? So we did that. And then, and we, I mean, you're still having these, you know, California saying very recently that they're, they can't discriminate based on hair. Like everything about our existence is so political. Mm-hmm. And so um, almost to the point where people do not, they just don't want us to have, to be, to exist. Mm-hmm. And that stems from, and I think one of the things that we have to think about when we're talking about equity, when we're talking about allyship, is understanding where things stem from, what the root cause of these present day manifestations of racism exists from. Right, so they didn't just show up one day. So if we had uh, laws that said black women couldn't show their hair, and it's perpetuated and been on the books until very recently, well, what do you think is going to happen with that? Right, when you have a system based on slavery, how do you think that's going to manifest itself into the overpopulated, the present day overpopulation of black women? in our business system. Like there has to be there has to be an understanding of the root mm-hmm. in order or, or the history or the truth in order to be able to reconcile at present day. And if allies want to be allies, then it's not my job like Selena, can you tell me what books I need to read so that I can understand? Mm-hmm. Then Google that. Like what? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not I'm not here. I have three children. I'm not here to, to be your teacher. Sorry. I, I, I'm not. I mean, you could pay me. I, I, I'm a career executive coach. I can do that. But I'm, I'm not cheap. So let's just start at that point. Um, no, I'm very of- serious about that. Like, I don't yeah. play business. I'm not your mama. I'm not your teacher. I'm not here for that for you. Sorry. Your allyship is now sloppy and lazy. So just, just take several seats and, and don't don't even bother. I don't even want you to be an ally anymore. Just just stop. At that, oh, absolutely, yeah. It is exhausting, like emotionally exhausting as well. Having these conversations with like ten different people constantly trying to inform them. Right. Um, worst case scenario, or actually probably not worst case, but sometimes debating them on your experiences or how something makes you feel. And it's just like, well, this isn't particularly up for you. Like, how are you yeah. going to tell me how I like yeah. react to this situation? Yes. So absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, I think that's, that's the challenge. Some people are at the point where they're not realizing that, okay, we are living in with our regular existence post 20, pre 2020 living with the general stresses that everybody has tap on a pandemic and we're like, okay. And then we tap on this this violence that we're seeing, this trauma that we're seeing across our TVs. But for some of us, that violence and that pandemic and those daily stresses are all wrapped in our daily existence of discrimination, Mm -hmm. right? So tired? We've been tired. We've been tired before 2020. 
now we're at the point where we're just I'm just fed up. I'm I'm not I'm not taking y'all on. I can't. Mm-hmm. I, I can't I can't with it. I can't with the it's please so so what book should I read about black in Canada and there's this thing that was made Beautiful. called the internet. <laughs> and then there's this even better thing like called Google that you just type in random words. Black History Canada. It didn't even be a freaking sentence. And you could Black History Canada book. Yeah. Boom. It just shows up. Y'all want to ask no, me? Exactly. Don't don't try to be an ally by trying to pretend like you want me to know that you're yeah. studying. That's not allyship. That's just that's just some kind of fake nonsense that I'm not down with. Yeah. I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. It's so performative. Yeah. It's kind of so, like they're centering themselves in the conversation to kind of absolve themselves, give themselves a pat on the back and just walk away um, so that they can be like, now Selena knows I'm a good person. I'm a good friend. And I think that that's the issue is that people are just so caught up in the idea that if they have work to do, that means they're like a terrible bad person. And then they start to have this like white fragility. You know what I mean? They start to like, again, center themselves in the conversation. And it's not about you. It's not about your ego. It's right. about other groups that are marginalized and how you've impacted right. them or how the system impacts them. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then try to say, I'm not giving you any books. Try that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Selena, why can't you just help me? I'm just asking for one book. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's okay. Please, please take several seats. I'm... I'm 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 actually good with not having friends as well. So, <laughs> I'm good with living completely alone. So, like if you if that is is like a threat that I you know I'm not gonna oh my god I can't believe she's just like, like I'm just gonna like just not even talk to her anymore. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely true. And like you were mentioning George Floyd and the pandemic. And I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Like when I first watched that, I was kind of, I don't know, like not surprised, just more so like, just, I, first of all, I never watched the whole video. Because no, of it, I haven't but no. Yeah. But just the idea of it and obviously just reading it, it was just, I was tired. Like you said, I was numb. I like stepped away from my phone and then I was angry. They gave it a day or two and that's all I did. And I was kind of like on social media, just like thinking of every little thing that's ever happened. And now people are just realizing and there's some sort of frustration to it. And it's like, I've just been yelling in an echo chamber and no one has even noticed. And now, but, and it's, it's kind of hard because on the one hand, you're grateful, but on the other hand, it's, it's like you said, tiring. Well, I mean, I think, I think there's a couple of things that have happened mm-hmm. in 2020 that really have made me think a little bit about um, where we are in our sort of lived reality. And, you know, we, we have this conversation on social media about people being woke. Well, I've been awake since day one. Where the hell have y'all been? Mm-hmm. You know, like this, it, it, it is, I wish people understood how stupid it is for an adult to say that they're woke. Like, where have you been? Where where have you been all this time? You know, to to even to even 
be living with such privilege that in 2020, as a as a full grown human being, you are you are all of a sudden woke. Mm-hmm. Well, what what have you been doing for the rest of your life? You've been sleepwalking because mm-hmm. I've been awake. Mm-hmm. I don't like I just I just can't understand that. I can't understand that philosophy of being proud of being woke all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. The second is this idea of cancel culture. Like, give me a break. Oh, you know, and, and we have like, I, you know, we have one political leader who's all of a sudden woke. We have another who is talking about, you know, um, we shouldn't, this idea of cancel culture is so terrible and we shouldn't be canceling people. Let's be a little bit realistic about this because black and indigenous people, in fact, most people of color have had their cultures canceled their entire existence in this country. When was the last time you read something in elementary or high school about black history? Oh, but now cancel culture is a problem. (laughs) When it's affecting you? (laughs) Like, give me a break. With this, like, this sort of notion that, oh, poor us, they're canceling us like flies. Uh-huh. The hell? <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it, it wouldn't be, it, like, it's funny, but it's actually not, it's, it's, it's not, it's not frustrating. No. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating when you think, if you had the moment, if you took a moment to actually think about what you were saying. Mm-hmm. about cancel culture or Justin Trudeau talking about being woke. Uh-huh. All y'all need to like, fuck back. Just, just, just back up. Uh-huh. You know, I, anyhow, that's me ranting. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Listen, I, I can only imagine what it's like being in a space like that where, again, like I said, politics is sometimes just about these buzzwords. We're going to, like, praise ourselves for having, you know, 50% of our cabinet and our ministers being women and all these, you know, great things that are on paper seem amazing. But, like like you said, in reality, what does it translate to? Nothing. And that's, I mean, really consider that. We went through a Me Too movement in the 42nd part. And... Lover or hater, I couldn't care less how you feel about Rudy Wilson Rebel. But mm-hmm. you know, we were we were everybody was tweeting about, you know, if women say that they're being assaulted or pressured or, you know, bullied, we should believe them. Hashtag believe them, hashtag me too. Everybody everybody and their dog was tweeting that. Then Jody Wilson Rebel says, I was being unduly pressured. By this man, and it's like, oh, I don't believe her. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, do you believe them when it's convenient, and you leave them when it's not? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. I, I see you. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And there's so, so we- many instances of that, like that where I can just think on the top of my head where I've known people who, you know, advocate for these things, but you have tangible situations like this, and they're not believing the woman, or they're not believing a different side of the story, and it's really disheartening. So, yeah. And I was wondering in that breath, like, 
the idea of social media and a lot of us, like I said myself, when back in June when this was all going down, I found out like that was the way that most people were communicating their thoughts and their beliefs. But how do you think that that is actually an effective way? Do you think that's just the starting point? Do you think that all of this like chitter chatter is just that, just chitter chatter on social media? What What is your thought about social media and activism? So, um, uh, on on the show, uh, David Letterman show, my, my next guest needs no introduction. Barack Obama was on that show, and I have issues with President Obama. <laughs> I think there are issues with everybody. I'm not afraid <laughs> to call anybody. I don't care how much I love. You know what? The, the thing is, is that us pushing our governments or our leaders or our elected officials to be better is not an indictment on the person. It's our responsibility as people who are civically engaged, and it is a responsibility to people who want to uphold our democracy, to push our governments and our institutions to be better, right? So if you're fragile about that, again, several seats back, do not put your name on a ballot, obviously it's not for you, okay? That's going to mm-hmm. make you shook. Um, but, and, and my challenge with Obama was that he tweeted about the prime minister and the next election, even after blackface, I thought was so disrespectful to our mm. human. However, I digress. On the show, he says that when when Barack Obama was on President Obama was on the on the episode, he said that part of the ability to lead does not have to do with legislation or regulation. It has to do with increasing awareness, shaping culture, and moving the status quo. And I think. Part of what social media has done was that piece around increasing awareness on issues. You could mobilize millions of people around issues with 140 characters. The problem is that when people think that that is it, that is not action, right? So when we think about, particularly around racism, when we think about being anti-racist, what you do after you send out that tweet. It's you volunteering or donating or lending your efforts and energy to organizations that excuse me, that you know need you to do the work, right? That you know um, whether it is uh, joining in on the call to collect disaggregated data around COVID and race, um, whether it is around actually uh, becoming part of a school board that is going to be part of the process to end streaming of black students or to end the suspensions or whatever. You need to then act. You need to then do something. You need to be part of the long game and not just part of the short game. The, the social media is the short game. The long game, the policy change, the action, the deliverable that all of the protest is about is what needs to continue to happen. And what tends to happen is that people do the short game because it's convenient. Um, and it does help because it does increase awareness, as I said. But in order for it to change and act and, and have that policy or that deliverable, it requires more than, it requires you to get off the couch and do something. And I want all our listeners to hear that it's all about the act. It's not just tweeting and then going, what you said, sitting on your couch. Make sure to actually tangibly follow up. Yep. Whatever ways you can, whether, like she said, donating or being a part of a board, 
just make sure to actually tangibly follow up on what you're doing. Um, well, we're almost at our time, but I do have one question left for you, Selena, and it's kind of a fun one. Would, would you rather live a week in the past or the future and why? That's a hard question for me to answer, to be honest, because I spent the last year really um, reading a lot of spiritual books, um, reading a lot about different philosophies, and trying to be more in the present. Mm. Okay. Um, and which is which is challenging enough as it is, right? Just mm-hmm. to be present, mm-hmm. to be in this interview, and to not be thinking, "Oh my God, what am I going to cook for dinner?" And not thinking about, "Oh my God, I shouldn't have said that tweet because I'm sure it's like going viral right now." Like <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Like it's so hard. So I I really focused on being present and being less intense about all of that other stuff. Mm-hmm. But if I had to choose, I don't. I don't know. I'd have to say the future. Okay. Because, I mean, everything that I've done in my past—it's the whole premise of my book, right? Like everything that I've done in my past, all my mistakes, hurts, pains, everything is there, and everything has built the person that I am today. So we're not going to change anything. I'm just going to go back and do the same thing over again. That's true. Yeah. Right? No, I like that answer. I think that everybody's going through it kind of right now in the pandemic, like just waiting for everything to change and the idea of just living in the present even. Yeah. It's yeah. a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lena. This was like amazing. I could sit and listen to you talk for like forever. And Samaya was so excited to do this as well. That's why we had her as a guest. Um, and thank you so much. This was great. Um, we hope, you know, you keep in touch and we love watching everything that you're doing and I can't wait to read your book. Um, and for all of our listeners, you can follow Selena on all social media platforms at I am Selena CC. Um, follow us at Ally2Squared or visit www.allysquared.ca. Thank you so much for listening. Our episodes occur bi-weekly on Sunday, so make sure to tune in.